Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. Last year alone, we had 13 companies that defaulted on their financial maintenance company. Insurance companies have embraced new ideas. Cost of capitals has gone up higher. It's critically important what's happening with the jewelry market for gold. The Fed's been trying to fight inflation with these rate hikes. The timing is just perfect. Once the market stabilizes, you should start to see an influx of deal flow. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Welcome back. Today's topic is preferred and capital securities. And we're joined by Phil Jacoby, executive director and chief investment officer of Spectrum, a wholly owned subsidiary of Principal. Phil, thanks for being on, man. We appreciate you taking the time. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to start this one like we start them all. What's the town you grew up in, your first job, not the fancy one, and a fun fact? I grew up in Milford, Connecticut. Small seaside town. It's beautiful there. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, kind of reminds me of uh, the Wonder Years. You know, that old series, The Wonder Years? That's uh, what it reminds me of. First job was in Chicago, in fact, and uh, at the Northern Trust Company. I started there right out of school and uh, worked in trust services and learned how to receive trust assets in from the wealthy clients and basically code them into the trust program there at Northern Trust and eventually ended up trading preferred stock in the insurance company advisory service of the Northern Trust. You're an insurance asset management OG. That's yeah. amazing. What, that's, what a great background. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was many, many moons ago. And how about a fun fact? A fun fact. That's a tough one, man. I don't know about a fun fact. All right. We'll, we'll go with what's up next here. So you are the chief investment officer of Spectrum. Can you talk a little bit about your background and a little bit about Spectrum, just kind of for those folks who might not be familiar and just so that we can kind of center the conversation just starting there? Yeah, sure. Well, my background after uh, getting a good taste of, of the buy side of the street as a young guy, I wanted to go into the sell side of the street and, and sell bonds and, and do what all those guys did that called me on the phone. So I was an institutional salesman for EF Hutton uh, back in the 80s. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And uh, I had a little specialty in preferred stock at the time and sick and fun preferred stock. So that was my little go-to as a fixed income salesman. You know, from there, I wanted to go back onto the buy side because I just enjoyed managing money and didn't quite like telling clients that they should be buying a bond that I really didn't feel all that convicted in. You know, of course, the traders had to uh, move their paper, and that's what you do on the sell side of the street. So from there, I went to uh, Ford Credit, the division of Ford Credit, called USL Capital. And at the time, uh, there was a carve-out in the tax code that said that you could deduct the interest on loans to the extent that interest and commercial paper was a significant part of your business. Of course, with finance companies, that was a significant part of their business. And that code was basically written into law because there was a huge, huge amount of capital pressure on the utility industry back during the periods where utilities were building a lot of nuclear plants. Uh, so of course, those plants had to have capital and finance companies at the time were big, big providers of that capital to help uh, support the more senior ratings of those utilities. They would basically issue subordinated debt, senior debt, uh, and then look to get some equity credit funding with preferred stock, in particular sinking fund preferred stock. 
So the uh, finance companies like Ford Credit, USL Capital, would purchase sinking fund preferred and deduct the interest expense and get the benefit of the dividend received deduction. So their return on equity was 50-60%. So that was a, a big game back then. And then uh, the markets changed and banks became needy of capital. We're talking, this is the early 90s now. And then um, in the mid-late 90s, the whole uh, industry changed when trust preferred uh, were in, invented, literally, by investment bankers in cooperation with banking regulators. That, of course, became uh, a big deal uh, where investors could get an extra 50 basis points relative to sub-debt, which at the time was quite a spread. A dated paper, tax deductible for the uh, issuers, but uh, providing some equity credit as well. And of course, uh, investors, in particular insurance companies, uh, were very yield hungry. And uh, there were literally lines at the syndicate desk waiting to buy the next deal uh, when the first uh, trust preferreds came. But then they proved not to be uh, as sufficient in providing capital to needed capital to the industry when the financial crisis came. Uh, we're talking 2008, 2009, of course. So basically, a preferred security at the time would allow uh, a passing of a dividend. And these were preferred securities. So they were actually, it was actually debt capital, junior subordinated debt capital held in a trust, and a trust would sell the preferred security. But underlying that trust, the look through was actually a subordinated debt issue to that trust. And therefore, a tax deduction available and some equity credit available and uh, some benefit to the regulator. So when the crisis happened and dividends needed to be passed or interest payments, that is, needed to be passed because it was debt, it was cumulative. And because it was cumulative, they could, of course, save the tax or the interest expense and the, the cash debit of that expense but they had to accrue that liability on the balance sheet. So it didn't give them all that they wanted. They could save cash, but accrue the liability to do it. So that was uh, viewed as being a flaw or uh, something not quite good enough uh, for the regulators. And from there, they changed the rules and needed tier one capital to be non-cumulative preferred stock. So it went from being debt and cumulative to being actual share capital and preferred stock and perpetual and non-cumulative. So therefore, if payments are passed, much like what's just happened here with the uh, First Republic, those payments are not accrued in the balance sheet. They're actually passed and skipped, and there's no acceleration of bankruptcy in the process of that happening. So that's been uh, a bit of the evolution. And on the European side in banking, uh, the same process uh, played through as well, but a little different. The AT1 or additional tier one securities there are not preferred stock like it is here in the US, but rather it's um, contingent convertible capital securities, which in some cases uh, is actually debt. So they actually get a tax deduction depending on their own tax rules in that country, uh, but it's perpetual debt and there's triggers on capital that would require it to be written down to zero under certain instances of, of stress and the potential for non-viability. So it's a little bit more junior. Payments are Parapassu in COCOs to common equity dividend payments, whereas here in the U.S., the whole idea of a preferred stock is to have the dividend being preferred 
to the common dividend payments. In other words, the payment on preferreds come first. And the only way for a payment to be stopped in a preferred stock is for the common equity dividend payments to be shut off first. So there's actually a priority of dividend payment in a preferred stock, but not a priority of payment in a COCO security. So they're a bit more junior down the capital structure in that respect. And just for folks who may not know, when you say COCO, what is COCO short for? Yeah, COCO is an acronym for Contingent Convertible Capital Security. So COCO. Got it. Thank you. So your focus and the focus of our podcast is preferred and capital securities today. Can you help us navigate the current environment and sort of what you see coming? Obviously, a lot's happened. Uh, Markets have been moving around a lot. You know, help us level set where we are and what's what's next. Well, the market has been evolving quite a bit, and so have the factors in the risk-based capital charges for insurance companies, as as we know. So there's a, a bit of a balance there between the yield available for capital securities net of those RBC charges and what you can get going up the capital structure in more senior bonds. So What's coming is really what's already come, and that is that the evolution has brought to us today preferred stock, actual share capital, down the capital structure, just senior to common equity, but junior to subordinated debt, and also uh, COCOs in the non-U.S. banking system, which are, well, depending on the regulatory regime, they're supposed to be senior to common equity but uh, certainly junior to um, senior debt and subordinated debt. So more of the same, basically. You know, the regulators wanted tier one capital, which is predominantly what preferreds are. Insurance company issuance and banking issuance make up the uh, lion's share of preferred stock. There are some utilities, some industrials, as the case may be, but about 80% banking and insurance. So we refer to the sector in a lot of cases by referring to tier one, which is bank issuance. So uh, tier one has a bit of a kiss, if you will, on tax subsidy because there is a dividend received deduction available to corporations, so they're not double taxed. Uh, So you can get a DRD kiss or benefit to it. Now, that really is dependent on the unique attributes of the insurance company, its state, and so forth. So it's hard to put a number specifically on what that kiss is. It can differ from life to PNC, for example. But, uh, you know, the companies know that we help to uh, find some economies within the context of what they tell us. So you've got that plus just the gross yield uh, where you get anywhere from let's say 200 basis points over uh, senior debt for a preferred stock and about 325 basis points over senior debt for a contingent convertible capital security. So quite a bit of yield. And it's really, it's a down in capital structure play in quality companies. So typically, well, not typically, at least for Spectrum anyway, we invest only in preferred stock issuers that have an investment grade rating on their senior debt. So we are fully invested at the enterprise level anyway, in securities that have enterprise uh, investment grade ratings. 
Uh, so when you go down the capital structure at that base case enterprise investment grade level, you go down the capital structure, let's say one notch uh, from senior to sub, another notch into preferred, and maybe another notch in the non-cum or below investment grade. So two to three notches for preferred and three to four for COCOs. So you're looking at triple B minus to BA1 or BA1, BA2, depending on, on the issuer uh, in COCO. So it kind of barbells that investment grade, below investment grade area to where we can get a weighted average investment grade portfolio. And of course, at the QCIP level, where we have the enterprise rating still being uh, anchored in, um, in the BAA1, A minus category. So you mentioned Spectrum and the way that you invest. Can you talk a little bit about Spectrum and, and the relationship to principal and your philosophy and approach? I mean, as you mentioned at the top of the show, you've been at this, like the overwhelming majority of your career has been spent in these securities. And that's amazing. I'm, you know, that's a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of expertise and what I would refer to as tribal knowledge, right? So can you talk to me a little bit about, about Spectrum and, and that background and, and your philosophy and approach to these securities? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, the, the team, you know, we've, we've been around the block a bit, so we've seen a thing or two and uh, we've actually been able to gain some of that tribal knowledge as you referred to and, and gain some wisdom in the process and looking back and seeing what things uh, you know seem to be repeating themselves or if you will not rhyming with things that we've heard in the past so uh, our philosophy uh, is very conservative at the credit level uh, we're going down the capital structure so we uh, seek to get our yield anchored in good quality investment grade rated enterprises without taking extraordinary risks to do that because the risks that we're taking are to go down the capital structure and live in that uh, in that lower quality sector or more risky sector, if you will, for for payments as agreed in that down and capital structure play. So it's a very conservative philosophy from a credit orientation. And I think that that's been proven to be beneficial over the longer period, you know, rolling two to three or five year type investment periods. So we like to be, shall we say, a little less good and a little less bad and come out sort of middle ground, have less of a sine wave to volatility and our returns uh, than our competitors um, have experienced. So that's that's our basic philosophy and our approach to credit. We have uh, quite a bit of uh, knowledge on the QCIP level attributes toward issues. Uh, these can tend to be very complex issues uh, and have complex structures. And uh, we seek to benefit from understanding these structures, a lot of which are fixed or refixed, uh, which is pretty unique. I think anyway, for uh, an insurance company uh, that is uh, keying on book yield uh, because fixed or refixed, especially in today's market, can be purchased at, let's say, a discount. Uh, let's just say 85 bucks, for example. And you get a refixing of that coupon, let's say five years forward, uh, which is the standard refixing. So as time ages, five years becomes four years, becomes three years, becomes two years. And that refixing comes closer to being term or executed at the then current level of five-year treasuries, if rates are rising or have risen like they have currently, uh, you can actually get an increase in income. So you get a bit of a pull toward par 
as the bond ages uh, toward that refixing if that coupon is going to go higher in payment. Now, it's going to go lower. Well, then it's probably true that the company would refinance and the preferred would behave like a five-year bond and get refinanced and redeemed and replaced. So you get par back. That's not a bad thing. Uh, to the extent you don't get par back and you're going to get a reset coupon, you get a pull toward par and the prospect of that 85% book cost having now not a three and a half percent dividend, but a five and a half percent dividend. So book yields can actually rise without trading a single security, uh, which is quite unique, especially for something that is a perpetual, which needs to be marked to market. So you've got a bit of a defensive orientation to the structure in portfolios that are perpetual and need to be marked to market on Schedule D2. You know, you're you're speaking the language of the insurance investor, right? So you're owned by an insurance company and you're you're managing these strategies for insurance companies. And I'll kind of roll forward when why should insurance investors consider an allocation to preferred and capital securities? I mean, you've touched on this and and you've talked about it just now. And I just want to make sure that if there's anything that I've that I've missed that I, I want to make sure I'm giving you the chance to talk about the insurance investment community in particular? Well, the unique aspect to the insurance community is the risk-based capital charges that are required for the investment and the accounting measures that are required for that same investment, you know, mark to market, held to maturity, lower cost to market, as the case may be. So there's going to be different preferences and balances required there overall for the overall portfolio uh, on a general account. So you can take preferreds and, in essence, optimize your uh, return on risk-based capital, net of those risk-based capital charges by the additional yield uh, for one, and the somewhat limited historical default, number two, but more importantly, uh, those, those yields net of risk-based capital. So, uh, for example, in a, in a cocoa, you can get uh, you know, better than 8% on a return on risk-based capital, let's just say it's your it's your net yield, your book yield times that uh, one plus the RBC charge, just very simply. You can take that book yield on a, on a cocoa and get a yield which is either equal to or greater than, depending on market demands. Right now, cocoa yields just on average a little bit greater than the high yield benchmark index is. But then you've got a much lower risk-based capital charge. So when you look at the return on invested capital, you can get more in a cocoa than you can in a high-yield bond. So high-yield bonds are often compared to cocoa because both are predominantly below investment grade. And the same is true for, um, for preferred securities, preferred stock, relative to the more senior uh, bonds. So there's a, a bit of an optimization opportunity without taking extraordinarily extra credit risk to do that by going down in the capital structure in these quality investment grade rated enterprises. So it's an optimization opportunity, uh, if you will, to better earn returns on that risk-based capital that's required uh, of insurance uh, companies to, uh, to monitor. I'm a certified insurance asset management geek too. I have not spent a lot of time on these securities, are there misconceptions that the investor may have about these in the market that creates this relative value? Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I think the misconceptions are oriented around the actual risk given default. And what we found over the years, just looking at the 10-year average history of default, uh, is that preferred, and we've been through some some doozy credit cycles, the, the actual history of default on average is uh, far less than it is on high yield. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm kind of doing some back of the envelope adjusting for some of the more recent defaults uh, in the news lately. And I'm going to say the average 10-year default for preferred securities, uh, including COCOs, junior subordinated capital securities, uh, is about 45 basis points on average for the past 10 years. And that compares to, I would say, let's just say 10 for a round number for corporate bonds, investment-grade corporate bonds, and about 2.5% for high yield. So the loss given default risk of a preferred is not as high as uh, some people think that it, that it is in reality. Uh, and you got to get a lot of yield uh, in addition to help offset that. And you also, at the corporate level, uh, get a nice tax kiss to boot. Uh, just that tax kiss to boot could be worth about two standard deviations of average spread over the prior credit through three credit cycles, for example. So that little kiss gives you, let's say, fourth and fifth standard deviation type type benefits in your pocket. So it's a pretty good bet, uh, we think, uh, when you look at historical default yield and liquidity is there. Uh, these are big issues in the uh, corporate bond world anyway. So you've got good liquidity as well uh, if you need that, especially if that's held in, uh, in portfolios that are, that are marked to market. You got to mark them and you got to have good marks and liquidity is there to do that. That's really helpful. So, you know, when I am interviewing a subject matter expert like you, I put on my insurance CIO hat. And when I'm looking out as I through the end of 2023 here, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with my next marginal dollar, what would you encourage insurance investors to consider from here, here out? Well, I think spread's important. And, you know, when you, when you look at issues that need to be uh, marked to market perpetuals, for example, or even you know, lower cost or market, you want to buy spread because that improves the probability of your mark not going as low as it would otherwise if you were buying them, for example, at tighter spreads. So right now, I mean, spreads matter, of course. I mean, if you believe in the you know migration back toward the mean under the area of a standard you know normal curve, uh, you're going to have that mean regression. And when you can get preferred spreads and even relative preferred spreads, not just absolute, but in the relative toward more senior alternatives that are one and a half, two standard deviations wide of average. And it's a pretty good bet that you're going to get some supportive aspect or element play through as that time ages and mark to markets happen to where spreads are tightening and those mark to markets aren't going to be as impactful on the balance sheet uh, as they would be to the extent you were buying them at one standard deviation tight of average compared to one standard deviation wide of average. You'd much rather have that migration toward the mean work in your favor in a mark-to-market in more probabilistic ways uh, than in your disfavor. So uh, now, given the point in the credit cycle that we're in, 
we're about one and a half, two standard D's wide of average. So it's a, it's a good, it's a good place to start scratching your head. Phil, I can't thank you enough for being on. I mean, I've learned a bunch today and I, I've have a new question for 2023 as a wrap. I hope you like it. Who would you most like to have lunch with alive or dead? Jesus Christ. There you go. You're the second person to come up with that answer. That's very nice. Very cool. It's the God's honest truth. <laughs> there you go. Now there's your fun fact. There's the fun fact too. You got that out of the way as well. So thanks for being on. We've been joined today by Phil Jacoby, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at Spectrum. Phil, thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. My pleasure. If you like our podcast, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the InsuranceAUM.com podcast.